Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we're going to talk about some of the issues around long-term human disease and some new solutions to increase longevity. And we can really start about how do, how do modern companies design new molecules to defeat some of the problems that plague us as we grow older? One good example is cardiovascular disease that around the world is a leading cause of death. And whether you're talking about, you know, the heart or maybe an aorta or something, uh, but even stroke is based on a vascular event. So the health of the circulatory system is a really critical part to solving these problems. And that's just one example. And we've always relied on drugs up front, things to control blood pressure, or maybe statins to control the contributing factors to say cardiovascular disease. So today we're going to talk about a company that is working with small molecule design with the idea of targeting some of the molecules that, that accumulate as we age, that are contributing to different issues like cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's or other afflictions that appear to, that seem to come on with age. So today I'm speaking with Matthew O'Connor, who goes by Oki. So Matthew Oki O'Connor, he's the co-CEO and co-founder of Underdog Pharmaceuticals out in California. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. O'Connor. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Fulta. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, it's really nice to talk to you. I'm, I'm excited because this is a little bit off our beaten path and kind of the direction I'd like to go with the podcast as we go into our eighth year now is not just talking about these big breakthroughs in biotechnology, but some of the interesting extensions around new drugs and new ideas and, and, and new approaches to solving important problems. And so when your big interest seems to be around uh, this idea of how do we live longer and more healthier? And until COVID, life expectancy was consistently rising, we, at least in the industrialized world. So why do we want to extend that? And what are your big interests in the area of longevity? Right. And in fact, including with COVID, the biggest risk factor for dying from COVID is, is age. So aging is, is, is killing everyone today, which hasn't always been the, in the case in the, in the distant past. But for the last 100 years, that has increasingly been the case. So all the major killers today, including COVID, including cardiovascular disease, and even respiratory disease and cancer, diabetes, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, these are all diseases of aging. The biggest risk factor for all of those diseases, uh, and many more, is aging itself. So for the next frontier of medicine, I believe that we have to look at the root causes of aging and how do they cause the diseases and disabilities of aging if we want to keep making the kind of great progress that we've been making over the last 100 years in improving human health and lifespan, which has, as you just said, increased tremendously over the next 100 years. But we have to tackle aging itself if we want to keep that positive trend going. Yeah. So there's a couple of thoughts here because aging is, you know, as calendar pages come off. 
there are likely changes that are happening at, say, even the level of DNA, epigenetic changes, things that are happening with modifications of DNA, where different genes are turned on and off in ways that are a natural part of human senescence. And it seems like your company has been targeting a lot of the intermediary molecules, which are maybe a result of those processes, or maybe come on as part of this senescence process, which is which is a natural part of animal development. I mean, we see it everywhere from mice to dogs to humans, just on different timescales. So what is the benefit of targeting these kind of intermediate molecules that seem to usher in or at least be associated with the aging process? Right. And they're only, I don't want to try to claim that that the the niche that we're targeting is the be all end all of the aging process. It's only part of it. And as you pointed out, there's many other kinds of damage that accumulates with age and the accumulation of toxic biomolecules with age in various cells and tissues is, is one part of the, the puzzle that we are going after. And we decided to, to, to start here because it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a low-hanging fruit that we felt like we could target, but it's also something that has been ignored mostly in, in medicine. There's not a lot of drugs target targets like the kinds, uh, like the main target that we're going after or some of the other targets that we're thinking about going after later. And, and then also with the class of drug that we're developing, it's, uh, it's kind of a new approach to going after this, this sort of class of targets. So, and also we felt like it, if you go after something that's just bad, as opposed to say something that's both good and bad, say like cholesterol, you know, it can be too high, but it can also be too low, right? You need some of it to survive. But if you have a toxic biomolecule that accumulates with age that is is only giving detrimental effects then in theory if you have a perfect drug that has uh, that that's on target you you'll never be able to overdose on it you'll only be able to you'll only reduce the the bad stuff that you're targeting so uh that was kind of our idea and philosophy in in going after uh this the way that we are yeah, see, this is a pretty intriguing concept to me that toxic biomolecules, it would seem like these things wouldn't be part of our physiology because biology would select against them, right? The things that survived would be the things that didn't accumulate these molecules and that eventually they'd be just part of evolution would go away. And I'd never really heard much about this. So what are some examples of toxic biomolecules? And can you give me maybe a really good disease where you can have a strong association specifically with a certain class of toxic biomolecules? Okay, well, obviously the easiest place for me to start is where we are are focused now, which is on oxidized cholesterol. And there's one species of oxidized cholesterol that we spend most of our time on because if you react cholesterol with a oxygen-free radical, then more often than not, you get the same molecular species over and over again. You get 7-keto cholesterol, which has a single extra oxygen atom on it in the 7 position around the the ring structure of the cholesterol molecule. And uh, that molecule is not other derivatives of cholesterol that are signaling molecules in your metabolism and your biochemistry. That one is not coded for in your in in your DNA or in your in your metabolism. It's not created intentionally like a steroid hormone or some of the signaling oxysterols. 
it happens accidentally when you have free radical damage of cholesterol. And so that, that will happen all the time. If you have oxygen around cholesterol, it's just going to happen to a certain percentage of the cholesterol that's there. So it has no useful purpose, so we should just get rid of it. It's very toxic. It's very atherogenic. We actually wrote a, uh, a whole review uh, article uh, about it and published in, in 2020 that people can go look up called Semiketocholesterol in Disease and Aging, published in uh, Free Radical Biology and Medicine. And uh, we go over all the different diseases that uh, this particular toxic molecule is implicated in, which happens to be a lot of the diseases of aging that, that it's accumulated in. Is it the single cause for all of those diseases? No, but it is, it, is a, it is a factor in them. So why has evolution selected against it? That was another part of your question. And part of that is about the, the evolution of aging itself. It, it, the, the, the idea is that most of the pressure in evolution comes from reproduction. So you have to survive to reproductive age and you have to you know, fertilize or, or produce offspring. And then you, in, in many species, especially in ours, you need to survive long enough so that your offspring can survive. And then you are evolutionarily successful. But other than that, evolution doesn't really care about you. And so if it doesn't kill you before you've given your, your offspring enough chance to survive and reproduce themselves, then there's not a lot of selective pressure to, to solve a problem. And so if you have something like oxidized cholesterol that accumulates slowly over decades, then there's, there's little or no selective pressure against it. And so in the human body, there is some capacity to deal with oxidized cholesterol and the liver, the hepatocytes can the, to, to an extent, metabolize oxidized cholesterol. But most of the, the cells and tissues in your body just haven't bothered to, presumably because that would be energetically expensive and it doesn't need to worry about that until you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. Okay, so this idea of oxidized cholesterol, you say it comes from this idea of free radical attack on, cholesterols, uh, on cholesterol. So where does where do the free radicals come from and do we accumulate more free radicals or have less ability to scavenge free radicals as we age? So it, it's actually a difficult question. I, most I, I, in my uh, previous life I spent a lot of time doing mitochondria research and, and and so most people think that most free radicals come from your mitochondria which I think by and large is true, but the question of whether oxidized cholesterol comes from the mitochondria or whether free radicals that cause oxidized cholesterol, the, the, the oxidants, come from the mitochondria is actually uh, surprisingly controversial. And part of the reason for that is that there's relatively little cholesterol in the mitochondria. So exactly that, that sequence of events is still a little bit of a mystery, but it's likely that, that there's free radicals, reactive oxygen species leaking out of dysfunctional or damaged mitochondria with age that are reacting with cholesterol in the cytoplasm, in the plasma membrane, and that, and that that's the, the original source. But you, know, you can get free radicals from, from other sources as well. Leaky plasma membranes can also be a, a cause of free radical production. And so how does this seven keto cholesterol relate specifically to some sort of uh, pathology? 
Well, 7-ketocholesterol or 7-KC or oxidized cholesterol or oxcol, it, it's involved in many diseases and many tissues. It, it accumulates especially in atherosclerotic plaques where it's thought to be highly atherogenic and it, you find large quantities of it accumulating in the necrotic core of the plaque and in foam cells. Foam cells are macrophages that get recruited to, to plaques that are supposed to go and clean up the, the lesion, but they end up when they go and they try to eat all of the uh, lipids and cellular debris that they find at the plaque and they accumulate too much oxidized cholesterol, that gets into their lysosomes, shuts down their ability to metabolize lipids, and they keep eating though, and they balloon up into these cells that look like little pieces of styrofoam is where they got their name, foam cells. And they end up contributing to the, the plaque rather than, rather than resolving it. So that's, that's the most glaring example of a disease that 7KC or oxidized cholesterol is involved in. It's also involved in Alzheimer's disease by similar mechanisms, likely. It's also involved in macular degeneration and uh, fatty liver disease. Okay, so this is a type of cellular event that's happening. It's based on this oxidized form of cholesterol leading to other types of uh, cellular events that lead to these, what seem to me to be kind of a, a constellation of long-term maladies that all kind of have the same, at least commonality of this oxidized cholesterol. So what is the solution that you've proposed anyway to be able to deal with this particular problem? Right. So I've actually been thinking about this problem a little bit for about 20 years. I, I saw a wonderful talk on oxidized cholesterol in, in, in atherosclerosis and how it causes foam cells about 20 years ago when I was in graduate school. So I've been thinking about it since then, but I, my previous foundation, the SENS Research Foundation, where I was vice president of, of research until I left to, to found Underdog, we were trying to find solutions to this problem of oxidized cholesterol in aging and, and in cardiovascular disease. And I, I started looking into the, the literature for, for sort of cheap and easy hacks, if you will, to, to go after this and found work in the 80s and 90s of these molecules called cyclodextrins that are uh, these really interesting cyclic carbohydrates that uh, certain kinds of them are the right size and shape to bind a sterile molecule. And so there were in vitro experiments in the 80s and 90s looking at different kinds of cyclodextrins and their, their properties and their ability to interact with, with cholesterol and cholesterol-like molecules. And that's what started to lead me towards thinking about what kinds of cyclodextrins could do this, which uh, led to doing experiments on that uh, in the lab and finding out which ones that were already available out of the dozens of existing commercial available cyclodextrins could bind oxidized cholesterol specifically and with high affinity. And from that, we could learn how to build a better cyclodextrin that could bind our target with much higher affinity and specificity than any of the sort of cheap generic ones that are available in the chemical catalogs. Yeah. So, and that's really where the magic happens. And so we'll pick up with that on the other side of the break. We're speaking with Oki O'Connor. He's the co-CEO and co-founder of Underdog Pharmaceuticals. And we'll figure out 
the relationship with underdog and exactly what that means too. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we're speaking with Dr. Oki O'Connor. He's the CEO or co-CEO and co-founder of Underdog Pharmaceuticals. It was my favorite cartoon as a kid. <laughs> so but why Underdog Pharmaceuticals? Right. So the the history behind the name is that my co-founder, Mike, and I were, were sitting around trying to think of a, of a good name for, for this company. And one, we're both dog lovers, uh, but two, since our approach is looking at an underlying cause of disease, the underdog underlying causes of disease is part of the inspiration. And third, that since we're taking uh, a bit of an unusual approach, since we're trying to bring a different approach to to, to pharmaceutical development from, from taking this kind of angle that makes us underdogs, or, or at least it, it did when we were first getting started. And so we, we felt like we were the underdogs going into this and that we had uh, something to prove. So that's where the name came from. It's good because, you know, most, most companies are trying to think of some, you know, something that has an edge of a sciencey sounding thing and, you know, and usually a lot of X's and Y's. <laughs> And so, you know, underdog sounded interesting. And especially if you package your product, if you do have a therapeutic, you know, orally administered pill or something to put it in a little ring like they had on the underdog cartoon. It's probably why that was, <laughs> it's probably why that was discontinued because <laughs> take the pills and all of a sudden you get, but feel better. It's kind of the opposite idea, the opposite messaging of Popeye that, you know, to kids. But anyway, well, I'll just, so we were talking before about this idea of these cyclodextrins. And cyclodextrins being these cyclical carbohydrates that bind to cholesterol, or is, do they bind? They so the, it, generically they bind to all cholesterols, or just the oxidized ones? Well, it depends on the cyclodextrin. So there's there's a bunch of different varieties and flavors. There's there's three different basic cyclodextrins: alpha, beta, and gamma. And those are just three different sizes. So the the medium sized ones are the beta cyclodextrins, and those are the right size and shape. To, to fit a cholesterol or a cholesterol-like molecule inside of them. And so there's a bunch of varieties of beta-cyclodextrins that bind cholesterol or different cholesterol derivatives or cholesterol-like molecules with, with different affinities or specificities. So that's where we started and started iterating from. Okay. So, so, but uh, where do they come from? I mean, are these things that we encounter naturally in food or anything like that? They, they're, they're made by some microbials naturally. So the, the core molecules of the, the alpha, beta and gamma forms 
are made enzymatically. So they, they get mass produced by enzymes that were derived from microbials that, that, that originally invented the molecules evolutionary. But after that, after you have one of those three, then you can synthetically modify them to have different properties, such as greater solubility that can confer, that can confer uh, safety. So if you take unmodified beta cyclodextrin and inject it intravenously, it'll be very toxic because it's hydrophobic and it will aggregate and, and cause damage to your kidney. But then if you modify it in certain ways to, to make it uh, uh, more soluble, then all of a sudden it can be one of the least toxic uh, molecules in the world. And, and there's certain cyclodextrins like hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin that is one of the most common excipients for delivering drugs in medicine today. And it's, it, it's extraordinarily safe up to grams per kilogram of body weight injected. Other uses for cyclodextrins, there's industrial uses for cyclodextrins. The, some cyclodextrins are approved for uses as fiber supplements. So you can eat them. You don't uh, absorb them if you eat them. You, you pass them right through your system and they, they, don't, they don't really interact meaningfully with your, with your metabolism. So they, they have some really interesting properties. They can be engineered in all kinds of different ways. You can build super materials and matrices with them. People have made self-healing gels with them. They've made super hard paints. Somebody in Japan built an entire car made out of only cyclodextrins. So they're extremely versatile and, and engineerable molecules, and they already have uh, a, a safety profile that the regulators can can understand and get behind. So that, that's uh, those are, those are all the factors that made them attractive to me as uh, as drug development uh, platform. How are they engineered so that they can work specifically to do the work that you want them to do in mitigating the effects of oxidized cholesterol? Right. So the the big breakthrough for us was was taking a beta cyclodextrin molecule and and figuring out the when we were studying the the cyclodextrins and their ways to to bind to our target oxidized cholesterol we figured out that the most stable confirmation of of the cyclodextrin with the with the oxysterol was two cyclodextrin molecules encapsulating together around one oxidized cholesterol molecule and in a certain conformation in a in a head-to-head conformation so that they were they were wrapping around the 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 sterol in a in a in a very specific way. So we asked ourselves what happens if we if we force that interaction by joining two cyclodextrin molecules together in that head-to-head conformation that they're naturally binding to the oxysterol with. What if we join those together in a dimer, but leave it with the flexibility so that it could still wrap around the uh, the target? And so we made a, a prototype and 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 mix them together and found in our in our first in vitro assays that we we increased the activity uh, of our cyclodextrin molecule by several not just several fold but several orders of magnitude so that's when we knew that we were onto something and we started iterating from there on how we join the molecule together and what kinds of derivatives we put on the 
outside of the cyclodextrin molecule itself to give it the exact right shape that it, it sort of grabs onto the target oxidized cholesterol specifically and leaves alone other related molecules that that you wouldn't want to, to get rid of. Yeah, see, that's the that's what was my next question is the specificity because cholesterol and other sterols are so critical to the fun- manufacture of hormones and other things. It is it really somehow in, in silico modeling process that allows you to predict specific molecular interaction with the oxidized cholesterol versus other sterols? Yes, we we took uh, that kind of iterative approach between in silico modeling of cyclodextrins and bench uh, chemistry and and rational drug design to do it. So we started modeling the drug, and th- this was actually started after we, we had this idea, and we were sort of you know doing one at a time, playing around at the at the bench. I had this uh, summer student, Mia Anderson, who came to me in 2017, and she had this idea, you know, hey, I took a class in, in undergrad, you know, modeling, you know, receptor ligand interactions, you know, psychodextrins kind of look like receptors and are, are the, you know, the, the oxidized cholesterol we're looking uh, at as kind of a ligand. So maybe I could hack one of these systems for, for binding psychodextrins and said, uh, what do you need? She said, I need $100 for a software license. I said, go ahead, give it a shot. <laughs> uh, and by the end of the summer, we had a whole new approach for, for, for looking at this. And, and that eventually led to the, the part of the inspiration for this, for this dimerization idea that we had and, and helped us you know, iteratively build some of these molecules. And so then we started making prototypes, testing them in some very simple in vitro Binding assays, going back to the in silico modeling, seeing if we could tweak the the molecules a little bit more. You know, synthesizing some more, testing them at the at the bench until we had one that that was preferentially we were selecting for something that could bind oxidized cholesterol, seven keto cholesterol in, in particular, and against dimers that uh, would bind cholesterol. Not to say that our drug doesn't bind cholesterol; it just very preferentially binds. Seven keto cholesterol. Yeah, was that the best hundred bucks you ever spent? It, I by far, I, I can't think of anything else that, that that I've ever spent money on that that, that has yielded uh, as as much value as that. Yeah, these days it'll get you a tank of gas and a Mountain Dew, you know, and that's that's uh, that's pretty amazing. So the, I guess the next big question in thinking about this is if you're able to sequester this oxidized form of cholesterol, which is the one that leads to the pathologies, is it able to actually reverse the effects of things like atherosclerosis or other, you know, if you say it plays roles in Alzheimer's, things like that, does it reverse it or is it just help limit the accumulation on the front end? The idea is that it will reverse it. So what we've uh, been able to show in cell culture models was first, could oxidized cholesterol is, is very toxic to cells. Any cell type that you incubate with, with oxidized cholesterol is at a fairly low dose of, of 7KC will, will kill pretty much any cell type that, that you can culture in a dish. And so the first thing we tried was, well, if we, if we add in some 7KC and we add in our drug into the, you know, into the cell culture media, the, the liquid broth that, that the cells grow in, uh, can we prevent their death? And the answer was quite dramatically yes. At, at, at pretty low concentrations of our drug, we could prevent their death. Now, you might say, well, okay, you selected the 
that, that's sort of a tautology because you you created the drug to bind the the target and then you put them in together so it just it just you know encapsulated the target and didn't let it get at the cells fair enough but then what we did next was was two really exciting things one is that we got some plaque tissue from from humans who had atherosclerosis when they died and we we took that 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 plaque tissue fresh from a, from a cadaver and incubated it with our drug and measured the oxidized cholesterol inside of the before and after we incubated with our drug and we found that we could draw out in a dose dependent manner huge percentages of the oxidized cholesterol in that plaque. Not only that, we could do it in an incredibly short amount of time, which was a total shock to me that we started out looking at hours and you know 24 hours and three hours. And bizarrely, the 24 hours and the three hour curves were exactly the same. So then we did it for 15 minutes and that was exactly the same. So the, the, the system is coming to equilibrium extremely quickly. So it's, it's acting, it's doing what it needs to do and it's doing it really quickly. The next thing we did was we created foam cells in the, in the lab. So you take macrophages and you, you feed them some, some lipids. In our case, we do it in a way that uh, we only need to, to feed them a little bit of oxidized cholesterol as opposed to a ton of bulk cholesterol. Like most people do, you just need to give them a relatively small amount of oxidized cholesterol and they'll turn into foam cells fairly quickly. So they balloon up. And what we did next is after that, we they're, they're not being fed the oxidized cholesterol anymore. That's sort of a permanent state. It's like senescence. It's like cell senescence. Once you go foam, you don't turn back into a healthy living macrophage. And what we've done and what we're still investigating the, the repercussions of this, and this is, this is all unpublished data now that I'm talking about, we were able to reverse the, the, the fundamental aspect of foaminess is the, is the lipid uh, levels that, uh, that are in the cells that are these uh, lipid droplets that accumulate inside of the macrophages. We can make those go away after they've already uh, appeared. So we're reversing the foam cell phenotype. So that's why we think we're going to be able to reverse atherosclerosis in people who, have already, who already have it, which, which will be completely uh, revolutionary if we accomplish it. That's, uh, that's never been done before. Yeah, I guess maybe, maybe I'm shooting a little bit far down the field with this next question, but the relationship between atherosclerosis and sudden cardiac death from cardio, myocardial infarction comes from plaque rupture. And so is destabilizing or reversing a plaque's structural integrity maybe not such a great idea? Or is, you know, so am I barking up the wrong tree there? No, that's actually a really good question. And you're not the first scientist to ask me that question. And, and importantly, the, the, the regulators who protect the public safety are, uh, are interested in, in that question. So we, the, the short answer is we don't know that we would be causing a, a thrombotic event when, when a plaque ruptures, but we don't want to do that in any person ever. So certainly we're going to tiptoe into those waters and, and only treat patients at first who have non-culprit plaques, which 
are, are uh, plaques that are not ready to rupture, that, that aren't in their latest stages, that, that have a fibrous cap that are, that are ready to break off and, and cause an ischemic event. So we're going to err on the side of, of, of treating people who, who, who don't have dangerous plaques, at least at first, that, that we might rupture until we have an awful lot of evidence that we won't cause a, a rupture when we treat with our drug. Yeah, maybe this is the pushback, you know, on the other end is why not just treat with things like statins to decrease cholesterol levels in the first place to decrease the amount of oxidized cholesterol? Like, why isn't that approach or why is your approach better than what would be the more traditional approach? Right. So that's the standard of care right now is that if if you have high cholesterol, high LDL cholesterol, especially, and or atherosclerosis, you, that your arteries are starting to thicken, you're going to be prescribed statins or other cholesterol-lowering drugs such as PCSK9 inhibitors. That's fine, but it doesn't reverse the disease. The disease is the lipids accumulating in the, in the arteries, and it is the plaque. And the plaque is what reduces blood flow and what can break off and rupture, as you pointed out before, and cause the heart attack or the stroke. So the, stat, the, 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 the cholesterol-lowering drug, such as a statin, it cannot reverse that plaque. Once you have that plaque, if it's you know, stage A or stage B or stage C, it, it, it is what it is. You might be able to slow down or, or maybe in some cases, there, there's some claims that, that, that if you can get LDL to you know, really, really, really low levels, that in, in some people that you might stop the, 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 the growth of, of plaques, but you're not reversing it. You're not taking that artery and making it younger, healthier. That's what we want to do is 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 take your your artery that's that's being impinged and and opening it back up and reversing the the damage that is the disease. Now that's really cool. I, and I and I really appreciate that last thought because you're actually dealing with the the problem rather than you know these other sort of somewhat potentially preventative measures depending on who you talk to I guess. But where are we in terms of the pipeline of these drugs that are working to reverse this? And are, are these something that are currently being animal testing right now or something you're seeing clinical trials? Yeah, so we're, we're well into animal testing for, for safety and pharmacology. We are... Our non-GLP safety testing is, is all very clean. The pharmacology, the pharmacokinetics uh, are all very good and favorable along expectations that we, we, we wanted to see. And so we're actually moving very quickly towards, uh, towards clinic. We've, we've already had three meetings with, with regulatory uh, agencies in the UK and in the United States with FDA. So we're looking at, at getting approval to to start human clinical trials next year in 2023 for phase one human safety testing. What are some other potential applications? You mentioned Alzheimer's disease having some sort of roles with the oxidized cholesterol. What are maybe the broader implications beyond atherosclerosis? Yeah, so we actually got a, a small grant from uh, the National Institute on Aging to, to look at our drug in Alzheimer's disease because oxidized cholesterol is implicated in 
Alzheimer's disease as well. Most people think of, you know, the debate between amyloid beta and tau when you're talking about Alzheimer's disease, and I'm not going to wade into that, and I'm not an expert on it, but fundamentally, Alzheimer's disease and dementia is a part of brain aging, and there is an implication of oxidized cholesterol in that process as well. One proposed mechanism is that the microglia, which are like the macrophages of the brain, and in fact, they have the, the same root immune cell that, that creates microglia as what creates macrophages. Microglia are supposed to clean up the junk in, in the brain like amyloid beta plaques. And so just like the plaques that are in the arteries that uh, you're worried about, it may be that the microglia in the brain are accumulating oxidized cholesterol and losing their function and losing their ability to amyloid beta, uh, beta plaques. Another aspect of, of brain aging is uh, vascular dementia, where the same kind of things that we're trying to treat in the, in the rest of the circulatory system, like in an artery leading to your heart, that you have vessels throughout your brain, of course, with blood flow that can accumulate lipid and plaque just like in the rest of your body. So those are, are, are ways that we can use our, our existing drug in other aspects of, of that cause uh, other diseases like Alzheimer's disease and other kinds of dementia. Yeah, in a way, it almost seems like a very obvious target because the brains are like 20% of the body's cholesterol is in the brain. I mean, it's a huge amount. And, and so it seems like a really intuitive target. Yeah. And what, what's the biggest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease? It's the APOE gene, right? And the APOE gene is a cholesterol transporter. And people, it hasn't gotten nearly enough research and it's still not well understood, is why is your particular allele of APOE the most predictive, it's not an allele of, you know, something that creates amyloid beta or, or something related to tau. It's an allele of cholesterol metabolism. And it's not well studied or understood enough yet. But clearly, in my mind, cholesterol should be involved in the, in the disease. So what's next for underdog? Aside from these drugs which are targeting the oxidized cholesterol, what else is in the, on the whiteboard or potentially in the pipeline? Yeah. So, oh, you know, first and foremost, we're trying to get our, our first drug approved for an aspect of, of cardiovascular disease caused by atherosclerosis. And secondly, we want to see if there's other indications, other diseases that will benefit from our lead drug. But third, we have this platform for designing cyclodextrins to bind small hydrophobic junk biomolecules that accumulate with age. So there's other uh, oxysterols that uh, result from free radical damage that we can target. And other things that build up in the lysosome, other aspects of that may be good targets. There's other things in the eye. Not only does oxidized cholesterol build up in the eye and contribute to macular degeneration, but so do retinol derivatives like bisretinoids that are a result of damaged retinol, which also happens to be small and hydrophobic and something that we uh, might be able to, uh, to target with our technology. So th those are some examples of, of things that, that we want to go over and go after with, with our technology. So where can people learn more about aging biology and longevity technologies? 
Yeah, so more broadly, you can listen to to podcasts like this, to podcasts that are that are focused on on aging itself. You can go to to, to websites of of organizations like the Life Extension Advocacy Foundation. Their social media is is fantastic, and their messaging on on aging and damage repair is great. The SENS Research Foundation, which is where our technology spun out of, is uh, is a good source. The Buck Institute on Aging has a lot of great resources. I almost shouldn't be uh, you know, picking winners here because there, there's so many that I'm going to leave out so much. But uh, there's also some great books that people could read. Uh, I think books, you know, the, 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 the most curated and, uh, and densest way to, to learn if you're not you know, a scientist reading the primary literature and and you want to, you know, absorb an entire field in one or a few books, I'd recommend Ending Aging and Ageless by Andrew Steele, the second to the first by Aubrey de Grey. Okay, that's really helpful. And maybe, maybe along that same line, it seems like this idea, especially with this, you know, big bubble in the population of, of baby boomers who are aging and moving into their senior years, that there seems to be a lot of people kind of taking advantage of this and maybe a lot of products that are maybe useless products, but are targeted towards this population with the idea of, you know, living longer and living healthier. And is there an easy way that somebody can help others separate the real from the mythical? Yeah. Well, I, uh, you, you, you need to follow this science, and even if you're not a scientist, you can follow the scientists. So there's a lot of, you know, these days, when I was starting graduate school, studying aging was almost a fringe field. And now there's there's many journals dedicated to to studying aging, to studying the biology of aging, and and to study you know medicine related to to aging. So it's an entire field in and of itself. There's departments and groups at uh, at most universities these days. So there's a lot of scientists, professors, academics who are experts uh, on aging who are writing academic papers about this, giving talks, and and and, and working with with companies like mine so you can you can look at at a company and you can look you know do they have scientists that are associated with the product is it going through a process you know is it is it is it a pharmaceutical or is it a nutraceutical is it if it's a nutraceutical that means it doesn't have much or any regulatory oversight so what kind of health claims are they making and are they credible? And is there research to back it up? Are there scientific articles that can be referenced? And the, do those scientific articles actually support what it is that the, the people who are selling this are, are claiming? So you you can do, I, I hate to say, do your own research because that's become a, a yeah. little bit of a, <laughs> of a bad word these days. You can do your own research, but there's also a lot, a lot of scientists, hundreds of scientists these days who are experts in aging that you can look for their opinions on these things. And you don't just have to go, you know, like the, the Joe Rogan show or something and get a, you know, a, a possibly less informed opinion. There's, there's, there's a lot of great experts out there now who can have informed opinions on these things. Yeah. And you get, and they're actually very much in touch. I'm always amazed at the number of scientists that you can find on Twitter who would be happy to answer your questions or at least say, you know, you know the, the thing, the stuff that comes from jellyfish is a bunch of garbage, you know, 
And so reach out to other folks and really vet these things because there are a lot of, at the same time, we have legitimate therapies coming out. There's also more and more supplements and nutraceuticals that try to fit into that same space. And you really need to have some sophistication to sort it out. I mean, even I would have trouble. And so it's something that, you know, I always encourage listeners, you know, do your homework and talk to the experts and reach out to them. And is Underdog or are you um, on Twitter or other places in social media? Yes, uh, Underdog is on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, and they can find us at underdogpharmaceuticals.com, at our Underdog Pharmaceuticals Facebook page, and uh, LinkedIn page and Twitter accounts of the same name. That works out great. And, and to kind of wrap things up, if you are able to solve the significant problem of cardiovascular disease-related maladies like, uh, you know, atherosclerosis associated disease and, uh, and stroke. What do people die from? <laughs> and do you have, uh, potential therapies in the pipeline for that? So it's kind of the old Wayne Gretzky, right? Like he's not great because he skates to the puck. He skates where the puck is going to be. And can you project, you know, what would be the next major issue for us going forward? Yeah. So there's, for one thing, there's no one, you know, magic pill or magic drug that's going to, you know, cure heart disease or, you know, completely obliterate heart disease and stroke or something like that. And and I don't want to try to claim that 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 our drug is going to do that in, in one fell swoop. I think uh, it has the potential to to be better than than anything else and to be a huge leap forward isn't going to be the be all and end all. So there's going to be a lot of hard work from a lot of researchers and a lot of clinicians and and and, and other companies that are going to solve this problem together. But you bring up an interesting point, which is there's all these uh, demographic studies that say, well, if you cured cancer, how many you know, years would you add to the human lifespan? Or if you cured heart disease, how many would it be? And you end up with, with kind of depressing numbers like, you know, you know, two years or three years or eight years or something like that. So, you know, the, you know, the question, you know, there's a sort of a, you know, question at the, at the end of that, if you, you know, cure the biggest disease in history, and then you only get, you know, five or 10 years out of it, you know, what was the point? Well, five or 10 years is still a pretty significant percentage of the human lifespan. So don't poo-poo that for one thing. But for another thing, these things are all synergistic and they all add up. So the point is that if you only tackle like one small aspect of aging, then, you know, you're ignoring the rest of the problem. So uh, if you're getting rid of oxidized cholesterol, you still need to get rid of the other toxic oxidized and, you know, hydrophobic small molecule junk that builds up. And you also need to get rid of the, the protein aggregates that, that build up intracellularly and extracellularly and the glucose cross-linked proteins that are everywhere in your extracellular matrix and the senescent cells that are accumulating in, in all of your replicative tissues and so on and so on. So you, you have to go and one by one solve the, the different aspects of the different kinds of damage that contribute to aging, both if you want to cure the diseases of aging, like cardiovascular disease and, and Alzheimer's disease and, and all of the others, as well as the aging process itself. So it, 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 
ours is one piece of the puzzle. We hope to be able to contribute to a few pieces uh, to that puzzle over the uh, coming years. But there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. All this seems like it's opening up lots of opportunities. We've got aging populations and a new emphasis on understanding the biology of senescence, on human senescence, and extending life and longevity. And so if there were students or others who thought maybe this was a fertile ground to explore further professionally, what would you advise them to do? Well, for students going through undergrad, I really recommend that that they get into internship, laboratory internship programs. If you want to get into science, if you want to become a biologist working on aging, I really recommend that you get into a lab at your university or get go to a uh, a internship program elsewhere. I have mentored students for for over a decade through the uh, SENS Foundation Summer Scholars Program, which has been a, a great program for, for students to, to get involved and, and to learn to become scientists. There's, for, for people who are in uh, different fields or who are maybe already biologists but haven't gotten uh, involved in aging and want to learn more, I've been a mentor for the uh, On Deck Longevity Biotech Program, which is in its second class now. And, and it seems like that's a really great program uh, where I've had a lot of great conversations with um, with people trying to transition into the aging field. And there's a new program that I've just gotten involved in called lessdeath.org, run by a good friend of mine named Mark Hamelinen, that is uh, it, it's starting its first its first class this summer. And it's, it's being styled as kind of a boot camp where uh, Mark wants to bring people, engineers, software engineers, uh, mechanical engineers, medical doctors, people from other fields and figure out how can we take your expertise and partner you with the biologists so that you can synergize your, 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 your professions to, to help bring treatments for aging and age-related disease to, to reality, to, to, to clinic, to, you know, to medical devices, you know, faster and more efficiently than the biologists working alone. So those are some, some ways that, that people can, can get involved themselves. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Oki O'Connor. I really appreciate everything that we've talked about here today. I've learned a lot. And, you know, as we all kind of fight the calendar, it's good to know this kind of stuff is going on. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure, Professor Falta. I've, I've really enjoyed myself here today. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. We're going to be learning more and more about new technologies that expand beyond just simple biotechnology, thinking about novel drug design, novel problems that can be solved, and how they may help the human condition as well as the environment and issues in food security. As we go into our eighth year, I appreciate everybody listening on a weekly basis. We have more downloads than ever, and I really appreciate you take the time to listen to this podcast. So this is Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.